Hello, everyone, and uh, welcome back to Future Talk with myself, Sam Pliska, and Harry Moy. We're still here. We're still in the same room. So, yeah, we're going to be talking about DeFi. We're maximizing the opportunity. We are. We are. Yeah. Of being together. Look, we're not going to try and uh, smoke and mirrors and, like, you know, we don't record one a week before release. You know, we try and get some done. So, DeFi, I mean, it's a. Uh, I don't know if it's the best time to talk about DeFi and that like the markets are looking very ropey, but you know, we're not going to be talking about speculative markets. We're going to be talking about the actual technology of DeFi and sort of what the future of DeFi will be. Yeah. Any initial thoughts, Harry? So I, th I think that, I do think the markets bit does play into it mm. because I think it does drive a bit of a fear around DeFi. And I think that when the markets drop, although they are financial assets, I think that does cause people to become hesitant about the system entirely yeah i guess maybe that was a bit unfair for me to try and like get rid of market talk i just kind of want to limit it for this talk but no no no, i appreciate that yeah but, that, but that, that's what i mean it's just that at the moment uh, i i can just imagine that some i mean in, in, in my opinion actually it's almost a good thing because yeah. with the markets dropping and we'll get into sort of more about how DeFi. i think it's probably good that we explain a bit more about how DeFi works mm -hmm. but it does make it cheaper yeah. to participate and be to be active in, in the DeFi ecosystem. Yeah, I guess there's kind of two things as well. It's almost like people don't join DeFi because they're interested about DeFi. Well, like the large majority of people won't join DeFi because they're interested in DeFi. It's because they're trying to make money on the markets. Yeah. And DeFi is essentially like another layer of coin swapping and, and buying tokens that aren't actually accessible on like a centralized exchange typically yeah but then there's also the general kind of financial infrastructure that you get that, that gets introduced of things like yield farming instead of a, a savings account yeah or the lightning network for bitcoin to be used for payments mm -hmm. and the, the speed that that offers in comparison to in comparison to using western union for an international wire transfer that sort of thing so yeah we won't we won't go into sort of the specifics on markets and things but i think there's it's really worth talking about the sort of the different parts of our financial system the mm -hmm. traditional financial system that's getting replaced by DeFi. but then as well i mean there's the fact that new financial products can be uh, can be introduced through through DeFi. yeah yeah i mean i'll be the first to admit like i'm still not fully clued upon everything that goes on in the DeFi world and the whole like yield farming i i understand that essentially like a lot of these applications that sort of run in a decentralized manner, they need liquidity and that isn't actually all the time driven from themselves. It's more like a like decentralized pool of people offering up their liquidity to be used. It's just like a, and that's just like a bank. Hmm. So when a bank offers somebody a mortgage, they are being given liquidity by the people that hold the savings accounts with them. Okay. So a savings account interest rate is i mean at the moment it's like 0.0001 but let's just say it's one percent mm -hmm. and then they'll offer a mortgage that's two 2.5 percent and then they make the money they take your money give it to somebody to use for a mortgage and then from the interest they give that they earn from that they then give you your money back plus one percent okay. of interest yeah. and they keep the rest themselves so that's how the banking system works. The banking system works by us at retail level, at least in terms of retail banks, we are, we as people putting our money to savings accounts, we are giving banks liquidity mm. for the financial products they sell. And, you know, that's more than just mortgages, but loans, any kind of financial instrument that involves them giving somebody money. So really yield farming is the decentralized way of doing that. Yeah. And that's why you get reasonable 
rates. And and that's really, yeah, that's all it is. It's just offering somebody who then gives money to somebody else, liquidity. Because, you know, when I was showing you MetaMask earlier on, you saw that it's it, it takes a fee. Yeah. And you imagine the, because the, originally you might be thinking, well, uh, you know, is there, is there really that much money for the rates and for the for the rates of money that yield farming offers? Is there really that much money moving? But we've seen the amount of money that is circulating through the De- uh, through the DeFi space. So there's probably you know tens of thousands of transactions happening every minute now. The more people that get onto DeFi, the more transactions that happen, and the more money there is to be made. And so yeah, you've then got the um, you then got the yield farming to because they need the liquidity to be able to, to help support those transactions. Yeah, and I guess like we did say this on the previous podcast in terms of like Naval's uh, tweet, you were saying like sort of make money while you, whilst you sleep. But the, the other thing that came with that was about scale. And like you talking about, yes, the fees are tiny, but we're doing it at like such a large scale that like, you know, if you had enough 1P coins, you'd have still have £100,000, you know. So it's, um, it is really interesting and like, it seems like it's like a, it's, it's, I think why people are most excited about it is because there's not been too many things that have been revolutionized in the last 10 years. Yeah. Um, you had the dot-com boom, you had smartphones and like, we kind of gone through this like lull period of like refinement of those technologies. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'd say that since I'm, I'm going to say since the iPhone four mm. in 2010, because I feel like the iPhone 4 was when the iPhone like properly went mainstream. And that's yeah. when you started getting a lot more legitimate competitors to the iPhone as well. And then, and, and therefore smartphones just became generally. Basically. Yeah. Yeah. And I suppose the accessibility of them was far better than like what it was originally in terms of like, oh, I'm not paying that much for a phone mm. until it becomes normalized. And sort of these financial applications that run on your blockchains or these blockchains are just simply more accessible it seems than like traditional financial products it almost seems like at times you don't have to go through a credit check yeah yeah exactly so like any anyone like a teenager we've seen like a bunch of like young investors just getting involved and like throwing a little bit of money not even like that's what i mean it doesn't even have to be a oh you need to have three thousand pounds in order to to use this product it's like no you need like 10 pounds yeah and that's probably as well what is driving the popularity especially with like you know developers getting on the space is that the accessibility is there like the the market is blown wide open for everyone to use so as a biddler and like that's similar to hodl there's now the the whole biddle term um that's the that's the motivation for for developers to get on with the d apps and get on with DeFi. is that there is a huge market waiting to be captured and it still hasn't been monopolized by any one particular body. No, no. And with that biddle sort of thing, that's where like there are opportunities to create different types of financial products mm-hmm. where I've seen some where it's something like you can, it's like yield farming, but basically you get the money like now. Okay. So you, you almost, it's, it's, it's like something that's never you, you don't get in the traditional finance space or it's like you, you can kind of like lock in the money and rather than wait like five years for it to earn its yield yeah. you just uh, let's say because the yield yields are high like yields some yields can like four digits aren't yeah they? yeah yeah so let's say you've got it at 200 percent yield annual yield over five years what you can just do is you can basically like 
get the yield now. That doesn't make any sense. Lock it in. How does that even work? It was just a smart contract, didn't it? But like, what's the incentive for them to offer that? Oh, I have no idea. Like, that makes no <laughs> sense. It always seems like it's open for abuse. Yeah. Yeah. Because you could just take the take tokens and run away with it and just make sure, like, essentially, like, you have just spent those. But that's another thing just to point out with, with yield farming is that typically you get paid in a token. So, yeah. for example, the one that I use is called Pancake Bunny. Mm-hmm. And you get, when you, when you are yield farming, you get part of the percentage yield is paid in what's called the pool amount. Mm-hmm. So if, for example, I'm offering Tether as liquidity, then, and let's say the the APY, because the APY for stable coins, so Tether is a stable coin, it's only at $1, it's always at $1, because it's backed by, <laughs> by, the dollar. by, by $1 for every Tether. of it. Yeah. <laughs> and that's, let's say that's a yield of 40%. Mm-hmm. 20% of that 40 will be put in pool which means I get 20% of it actually paid in Tether, yeah. which is still really good. But then the other 20% will be paid in like the bunny token. Yeah. And then you're sort of waiting on the fluctuation of, of the bunny token and seeing, you know, the markets at the moment and the market's crashing. It's, uh, it's not all that, um, not all that high. Yeah. Cause I think I, like I've seen something recently in terms of like the DeFi chains out there, you, you obviously have Ethereum, which is like first mover. And then you have, Binance Smart Chain, which is kind of like people call call it a bit of a clone of Ethereum and just sort of like. Well, it is because your your wallet, pretty much your wallet address in Ethereum is the same as your wallet address in yeah in BSC. Just I guess the marketing is that oh you have less fees. Yeah, and and I think that's just one thing to just to point out. So when you transact on the Ethereum blockchain, you have to use ETH. Mm-hmm. So it's almost like your it's, it's called gas. And I think it's quite a good analogy, which is that it is like gas to, to fuel it. Mm-hmm. And with Ethereum, you're you're paying a price. And the more that you can pay, then the greater that you, you can have it, the computation happen faster because it's a blockchain, but it's also like a distributed computer network mm-hmm. that is performing computations for you. When the price of Ethereum goes up, the price of the gas goes up as well. Mm. So you get to the point where to just move money on Ethereum, it can cost you the equivalent of $10, $15 just to move money, which then makes you go, well, what's the point in this DeFi space anyway? If I'm paying this much money to perform a transaction, to yeah. if you look at, say, for example, wire transfers, why would you pay $10, $15 to do it over crypto when you can do the same with Western Union, for example? But then there is using with Binance Smart Chain, which is kind of centralized, you're paying 80 cents. And it's good because it means that there's now a, comp- there's now a competitor. And that means that, for example, if I make a transaction, so I, uh, in some of my business investments that I've made, I made investment um, into Nigeria, and that was at a cost of like 80 cents of the transaction. Now, if I was to do that via international wire transfer, that would cost maybe if I was using like TransferWise or Wise as they're called now, who are one of the cheapest, that would be like five, seven, five dollars, seven dollars. Mm. But this is eighty cents. So there's there's advantages there of um, of having multiple chains. But then there's also a risk of when the prices go really high, what that does to the ecosystem. Yeah, and I guess um, the reason why Ethereum's 
price has gone so high is to basically secure the applications that are now running on Ethereum. Like there's there's a, a whole plethora of D apps that are being Tether. So Tether, this the dollar stable coin yeah. that sits on Ethereum. Yeah. That's an Ethereum and you find that a lot of the coins that you yeah. transacted in actually sit on Ethereum. Like I made my own coin. I made my coin. Yeah. And that's on that's on Binance Smart Chain. It'll be like ERC twenty basically, an ERC yeah. twenty token. Yeah. And I think like, you know, if you were to have a hardware wallet, I'm pretty sure like if you were to select what specific token you wanted to open a wallet for, then like in small writing it will say like Ethereum network token. Yeah, and in some cases what you so when you create a token, you are you're basically deploying a smart contract onto Ethereum network. And what that then gives you is then get an address for that for that token. So when you see these what are called shit coins, which are like this Shiba Inu and Cummies and all of these yeah. stupid tokens, to buy them, what you do is you, you if you go into Binance, for example, I mean Shiba is now listed on Binance. Binance is an exchange, but you couldn't buy Cummies, I don't think, on uh, on Binance. What you do is you go into one of these swap protocols and you get the contract address and you put the contract address in to say that you want to buy that and you perform a swap from, say, Tether to Cummings. Mm -hmm. So is that basically, Binance is a centralized exchange, so like a CEX. Is the swap protocol a DEX, a decentralized exchange? Yeah. And I guess that, you know, when we're talking about and it's but it's sorry it's but it's it's important that we have these centralized exchanges because if you don't have the centralized exchanges it becomes very difficult to actually get crypto yeah because the this is the way in which you it's through those that you're able to convert fiat which is like real i say real but yeah you know pounds dollars that's how you're able to convert fiat into cryptocurrencies which is funny isn't it because it's like the gatekeepers to the decentralized world are centralized exchanges. Yeah. <laughs> the thing is just because they cannot, because they, they've got liquidity to be mm. able to operate scale. Because really what you could always just do is I may want to transact with you and I may just go, you know what, I'm going to send 40 quid to your PayPal account mm-hmm. and you're going to give me 40 pounds worth in, in Tether. Yeah. And in us doing that, the big thing that we're not doing is there's no KYC. There's no identity check to make sure that I am a legitimate person and yeah. you can then potentially go through those kinds of routes to, to launder money. And this is what you had to do. Back in the early the early part of Bitcoin, you didn't have all of these exchanges. So you did have to just send people money and hope that they would send you the Bitcoin back. Yeah, I didn't know that actually because I mean, I only got into it in 2017. So I suppose that's like 2013, Silk Road, Dark Web days. Right? Yeah, you had Mt. Gox at that point, but that was like the only one of the only exchanges. So I, when I bought Bitcoin, when I bought 0.1 Bitcoin for about £7, that was done through a PayPal transaction. Mm. And why did you do that? Did you just want to have Bitcoin as... Was, I was just interested in, in, in how it all worked. Yeah. And then I sold it for like £70 rather than the... Hard limit. To... Rather than, I mean, we don't know. I mean, now it's worth, probably worth fuck all because Elon's tweeted. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, I, about what, a few days ago, it was worth about four grand. Mm. But, oh, well. Crazy, eh? Yeah. Not bitter. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> but like... Only 4000 yeah. It's not like I had, it's not like I had like loads anyway. So. Yeah. But, you know, you mentioned about competition, like whether you're 
you believe in Binance Smart Chain or not, like the competition is good. And yeah, that's it. It's obviously caused the Ethereum developers to really start trying to move away from proof of work and like trying to sort of squ squash the like the scaling problem that Ethereum has. And it's not the only competitor. You have um, Cardano that is, you know. But nobody's building anything on exactly, Cardano. Yeah. No. And then you have Polkadot, which again is like still in testing, but they're, so they're, I think it's Kusama is like their test net. Um, so they're like deploying parachains. So like the parachain in Polkadot terminology is essentially like another blockchain that resides on like, or connected to Polkadot. And the actual like dot token is what provides the security to these other parachains. And then as well, you then have the Flare network, which again is just like another one of these chains that is going to offer up um, like DeFi solutions or at least provide the network for people to build DeFi solutions. So, you know, you have at least four or five at the moment, big ones. I think Solana as well. Yeah. But like, it's, it's an ever-growing list. But then the, the other question is like, are they going to be real or not? Like, yeah. is, is, for example, like Cardano, is it actually just a scam? I mean, it's an elaborate one, if it is, you know? Because there's been live events and stuff like that that has got a lot, a lot of, like, has convinced a lot of people. And there was a recent thing I've seen whether it's true or not, it's a, a DeFi 100 coin and their website, what they said, they had like pretty much Twitter silence for the best part of like two months. Um, and they had one of these ICOs, so like initial coin offerings of their like native token, which people have bought into. And then their website the other day had basically said like, haha, we scammed you all like so long moon boys, basically, um, to which they now responded on twitter saying oh we got hacked like we're not going anywhere and like it's a really like damaging mm. attack actually in terms of their reputation but yeah you know what is a scam and what is just developers taking a really long time to get shit done and that's where ethereum does have the first mover advantage and that's why they have like a a large suite of like DeFi applications um to be used so i think it's some may be scams, but the future is that like Ethereum and Binance Smart Chain will not be the only ones to offer up um, DeFi. There will be certainly many other competitors with their own other like little niches. So Polkadot's niche is obviously the parachain. So we talked about Flare Network's niche is that you can like mint assets of other cryptocurrencies that can't do smart contracts to enable them to do smart contracts. So you kind of have these other like niches that these networks have in order to grab a market share of the DeFi space. But I guess like, what, what is the most exciting thing to you about DeFi? Is it sort of the accessibility of everyone having to get involved or is it sort of like the institutional changes that it can- I, th I think it's, it's, it's the institutional change that it affects. I mean, the one, if there's one thing when we talk about DeFi that really, that I just think is, is so big is the Lightning Network for Bitcoin and mm -hmm. just the people building on the Lightning Network, you know, strike in that you can send somebody dollars, it converts those dollars into Bitcoin, right. goes across over the edge, switches from Bitcoin into pounds. So you've just converted money. You've just done an international wire transfer mm -hmm. and it's cost nearly nothing to do. We're talking, you know, decimals of a penny. Mm -hmm. And it's happened in pretty much near real time. Yeah. That to me changes the game for international payments. You think about people that not only really have to make international transfers that often. So when 
on uh, on AngelList when you make investments to when you make um, angel investments on AngelList, you have to perform a wire transfer. So what you do is you wire the funds to AngelList, and AngelList then gives the fund gives the funds to whomever. Mm-hmm. That cost me like four or five pound, I think it is to do, and it takes me about two days. Day, day and a bit for the funds to arrive in the account. Which is kind of scary, right? To, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because because result. you have to check the, the status and stuff and mm. just make sure that it's 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 sending. With the Lightning Network, you're doing that like straight away. That's happening. Mm. And for people that people that say, for example, immigrate from Africa, you know, it's not it's common for people to africate africate to to immigrate from Africa or from South America and go to somewhere in Europe or go to America. And then what they'll do is they'll, where they're getting a higher wage and then what they're then doing is they're then sending the money home. Mm-hmm. And as they're doing that, they're paying the Western Union a, a lot of money who are taking a fee and then also not giving them a preferred rate of exchange. Mm-hmm. But then also the money then gets withdrawn from these Western Unions in these other countries. And you find that there'll be gangs waiting outside to, to steal from people. Yeah. Now, if you make that digital and you're seeing it in El Salvador where they are starting to accept Bitcoin and accept Lightning as a, as a payment mm-hmm. because Bitcoin itself cannot work as, as a payment, as a mechanism for exchange, no. as a medium of exchange. But when you implement the Lightning network on top of that, it becomes possible. So these places that are able to accept Lightning, now what you're doing is you're removing that risk of gangs where to get outside of Western Union. So you're you're offering both cheap money you know you're offering three things you're offering cheap money you're offering it fast and then you're offering it with security mm. physical security i mean one of the things that strike's also doing is strike is able to like stream payments i mean that changes the way in which you get paid what you can end up doing is rather than get paid at the end of the month you're getting paid like every day yeah you get paid every minute which is kind of weird to think about isn't it yeah you, i mean you typically do get paid either monthly or or weekly yeah so like what does what does that do for people's budgets though <laughs> if you have a gambling addiction you know like, i just need to wait another three yeah. minutes that's the thing yeah but then, but, then, but then for people that come the end of the month towards the end of the month or towards payday they're illiquid mm-hmm. it, it changes things for them yeah but that can mean that families and stuff have, have got food on the table all the time rather than rather than struggling and i guess to do that at scale as well is pretty impressive so you're like streaming payments to like thousands of people. And the important and the, the, the important thing is as well is that from an infrastructure perspective, it's just using the Lightning Network. So the, the infrastructure has been built for them. You don't need to be like the guy that founded Strike called Jack Mallers was like, I don't need to set up ATMs in El Salvador. Mm-hmm. It's already there. Mm-hmm. And that's why you're saying like that, you know, from a traditional finance perspective, it's very difficult to actually compete with DeFi because the infrastructure is already there. It's interesting, isn't it? Because like the analogy I'm drawn upon now is very similar to how paper notes and cash came about in that it was gonna, it was initially like backed by gold. And essentially you're just saying, well, instead of me taking gold out of the bank and then transferring it and holding it, just give me this note that is basically like a value of a set amount of gold. And it's kind of like, in a way there, the gold was the layer one. And then the notes were the layer two, mm. you know, and you make this like cash system, like this physical cash system. And that's, and I think that is actually a really great analogy because mm. so if, if you don't know how the lightning network actually works for Bitcoin, what you're doing is you basically open up a channel with somebody 
and when you open up the channel, you are kind of, it, it acknowledges that I might have a Bitcoin and you've got a Bitcoin. Yeah. And then through that channel, we're making payments to one another. And then at the point in which the channel closes, the balance is always going to be two Bitcoin because yeah. we both entered with one Bitcoin. But when the channel closes, the, the ledger might reflect that the, the total balance is two Bitcoin, but my closing balance is 0.5 Bitcoin and your closing balance is 1.5 Bitcoin. Yeah. So when it then records the transaction on the blockchain, on the Bitcoin blockchain, it records the transaction as me giving you half a Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. Even though we've moved, we might be, be making a thousand payments between one another because the end result of that balance sheet mm. is me giving you, me having half a Bitcoin less, you having half a Bitcoin more, that's a payment of half a Bitcoin from me to you. Yeah, which is interesting because obviously that's way more efficient than recording every single transaction on the Bitcoin blockchain, right? Because I mean, that, this is the whole thing about blockchain is like, it's immutable. So like whatever transactions happen is recorded and locked away and that's it. And then it's part of the history. Provided you don't have more than 51% of the network <laughs> or 50 or 50 plus N percent of the so network. Or the civil attack. Yeah. yeah. Mm. So it makes sense because payments aren't this like one cataclysmic event. They are little and often. So it is incredibly inefficient to log every single one, especially if it's only me and you transacting between each other. But like, how does that channel define being closed? We, one of us says it's closed. Okay. So is there a, is there a chance then that you could have like year long transaction channels open between us? So like a contract whereby I say to you, you're going to work for me and I'm going to pay you over the year, a salary. Yep. But the salary is in Bitcoin. So that all that means is that you started with zero Bitcoin. I started with four. And that's what is within our channel. It's just that at the end, I will have paid you three Bitcoin for the year. Yep. Okay. Yeah, that's really interesting. I'm just thinking of like, is there then going to be a time where people are like, wow, we don't really want to close the, the channel. Like it's never going to close. It's an infinitely open channel. Yeah. And I think that's where the, there's the liquidity in the Lightning Network. So mm -hmm. the Lightning Network is liquid. Mm -hmm. And that's where some of the, like the Bitcoin and stuff comes, comes in is that the Lightning Network itself is kind of almost guaranteeing Bitcoin existing. Yeah. But the thing with the channels is that anyone, any, any of the parties can close the channel, but channels are also transitive. So by you having a channel open, me and you having a channel open, I can then route through that a channel between to somebody else who you've got a channel open with without having to open up a channel with them. Right. So through like collateral of that person, you can like pay another person kind of yeah it's just it's it's basically just a way of doing routing doing network routing to prevent there from needing to be because you're just reducing the number of channels that's needed mm. because if you've got a channel open to somebody rather than me open a channel with them i just route through you because you have them. like a daisy chain of channels then. yeah and that's just more efficient so i guess right that's a good example then so like we were talking about paying you a salary let's say the company i worked for started a channel and like to go even further, like, fuck it, we'll go all the way. The group open a channel with the companies they own. Those companies open a channel with like a department maybe, or multiple departments. And then like, you have this like daisy chain, like hierarchical structure of like transitive channels, basically. Yeah, but you have to bear in mind that the channels that they, when they open is that they've 
it's a balance sheet. Okay. So each channel is basically a balance sheet. So even though I'm rooting through you to get to somebody else, you're at the equation. It's a balance sheet between me and that other person. Right, okay. It's just from a network perspective, we're rooting through one another. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Because that's all it is. It's just a balance sheet that has an opening balance for each party, a closing balance. The total balance should never change. And then once it's closed, once the channel's closed, the whatever the final effect is of that uh, of that balance sheet, mm. that then gets recorded onto the main uh, blockchain. Mm. Yeah, that sounds very complicated, like, to think of. It sounds really impressive. It's really ironic as well that, like, when talking about what you're most excited about with DeFi, you you said Bitcoin, like a Bitcoin DeFi application, basically. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't expecting it at all. It's mainly because of the, just the real world applications of that, though. Like yeah. the fact that it's something that can really help in terms of really like social justice in a way. Yeah. Of like these countries that are, are, are poor and suffer because of corruption that's that's uh, that exists. And in a way, it's almost fulfilling the promise that cryptocurrency tried to like introduce. Like, mm. you look at the early days of Bitcoin; it was a libertarian movement of people saying of like freedom from uh, freedom, the, freedom from government, financial crash, wasn't it? Yeah, and like freedom from the central thing. So, it's almost like anti-corruption. Mm-hmm. I mean, now obviously there's people that are using it for corruptive purposes as well, but at its core, it's able to provide freedom to. To people all over the world mm. it just required another layer of complexity that was all yeah just to make it more efficient yeah yeah it, it definitely is interesting i think like that's kind of where i'm most excited about it is the fact that like you're the direct impact it can have on our daily lives rather than it only benefiting like giant institutions so it's basically like it's helping out the little man it's not it's not necessarily just like making giant corporations Feels less do you know what i mean like it's actually benefiting us and as well like as tech people it's great to be able to finally be riding a wave of new tech i feel like you know i'm mid-20s at the moment unless i was some sort of boy genius i didn't really have an opportunity to to start riding the wave of um especially not the dot-com boom or or really like the smartphone applications maybe i could have like mobile apps maybe i could have like ridden that wave but this definitely feels like one of the best opportunities either for investing or building. Yeah, because I think from a overall consumer computing perspective, we're kind of in like the AR, VR mm. age and like the incoming of the AR, VR age. And you know, the thing that just because it's just for the sake of having it mentioned on a third consecutive episode <laughs> with the metaverse and building the metaverse, because <laughs> obviously we love it. Yeah, uh, this is another way i mean this is kind of a change in infrastructure of the infrastructure of the world yeah right so if you look at uh when you look at public infrastructure you typically think of trains and railroads and all that stuff yeah but finance is in there the moving of money is in there and so it's one of the most important pieces finance and, and the financial system that we've got is a critical part of the infrastructure uh, for us to be able to 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 live i mean if you've ever watched mr robot there's a part where they basically turn off like one of the biggest banks in the world and it's just fucking chaos happens yeah and now it's it's the it's the building of like a new way of doing infrastructure but it's 
putting that in combination with technology. And what I also find it, it does is it helps push forward to me this idea of like technologists rule the world mm. because technologists are able to create new financial products that these bankers haven't even thought of. Yeah, yeah. And they're able to do it just by writing code. Yeah. And there's like a, a high level of automation involved in it as well. Yeah. And I think that's one of the reasons why it's so hated and reviled by the large financial institutions mm -hmm. because it's kind of them going, oh, fuck, maybe we're not as clever as we thought we were. Yeah. Yeah. And like we've definitely spoke about the generational divide that is like really apparent between our parents and like our generation and the generations below us in that there is our parents' generation is still very much in charge of the financial structure. Yeah. And it's probably not going to be a short-term thing, this this change, this like institutional change. And like we've, we've spoke about as well, talking about infrastructure and how long it takes to innovate and ultimately like deploy those innovations. Mm -hmm. So like if you think railroads, the bullet train, like we've got the, that train from Birmingham to London. HS2. HS2. It's going to take like... 18 years yeah. in the making to fucking ridiculous like so. it's kind of almost like it doesn't seem like it's going to take 18 years it still feels like as far as like infrastructure changes go it's going to be like quite rapid and quite fast but th there is certainly resistance against it but with that resistance i kind of feel like we're at the point where we're now too far gone mm. and so when there's the concerns about cryptocurrencies being banned i just don't think it's possible for them to ban it now. Yeah. I just can't see, I just think we're too far gone with DeFi that for a government to just be able to ban it doesn't really make sense. But then as well, it's one of those ones where it's like, if everyone bans it, let's say every government like bans it, there's an opportunity for one government to go, actually, we're not going to ban it. Yeah. Yeah. And they're going to benefit from doing that. Yeah. If anything, what, what needs to happen now is this is, is states need to support DeFi. I mean, we've seen it with Wyoming is that we can see that they've become the first, the first state in America to allow for like DAOs now, decentralized autonomous organizations, which are basically kind of companies. It's a similar to like an LLC in America, but its governance structure is dictated through a smart contract. And it's through the people that own the tokens that belong to that DAO mm. are the decision makers. And that's what makes them shareholders, et cetera, et cetera. And as a, as a state, they're the first state to be in support of that. So that's a state that's like one of the least popular states in the world, in, I'm sorry, in, in America, uh, you know, for them, it's like, well, this is the way in which we can bring in and try and become the, in a way, the capital of crypto. Yeah. Yeah. I guess like we've already said it about Ethereum being like first mover advantage. Like why is that any different for a state, I suppose, yeah. in their support? yeah yeah at the same time as well i still feel like it's it's very juvenile like DeFi. i don't know when it originated and being involved in 2017 i'm not sure when like uniswap actually began so like, markets the market cycles bring in like as they wave up they almost wave bring a wave of people like new people into the industry and as a result the popularity increases um but looking at uniswap founded in 2018. So DeFi is way more juvenile than blockchain technology is and still has a ways to go. But 
I mean, even we were t- talking about like potential financial products that could exist in DeFi that currently don't exist at the at this moment. Because you're right, like all we've seen is like yield farming, decentralized exchanges, like liquidity pools, loans as well. I've seen. Yep. So we see loans with where what you do is you collateralize your um, your crypto. So. This is kind of a more of a bridge between DeFi and TradFi, as it were. But you've got like BlockFi, where what's TradFi like? Trade finance, traditional finance, traditional TradFi. <laughs> yeah, so it's cool. It's called TradFi. Uh, ChadFi. <laughs> Not for much longer, but yeah. So they, you've got like BlockFi, where what you do is you can give like your Bitcoin, you collateralize your Bitcoin mm-hmm. at a fifty percent loan to value. So you then get fifty percent of the value of the Bitcoin which is now like nothing. It's going to keep saying that every time isn't it? because of the way the markets go. But you would then get that in fiat, you get that in, in dollars, you then pay it back as, as though it's a loan. And then at the end of it, you keep your Bitcoin. But if you didn't make your payment, you enter delinquency, then you've lost your Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm. And but that's like how a porn broker works. Yeah. You, yeah. you give them a real product they assess the value of it and they will then give you a percentage of the value of that product and then you pay your money back you pay your loan back to them with the interest but if you don't you don't and you enter into uh, delinquency then the pawnbroker keeps the product that you've um that you gave them oh, i see yeah because actually like i'm not too clued up on like what potential financial products there are so like the way the pawnbrokers work i didn't realize that was the way it worked what do you mean it's like how a mortgage works so the collateral is the house. So if you stop paying your mortgage payments, don't pay, we'll take it away. Yeah. Okay. And I guess is that kind of all that's happening at the moment? Is like like tradfi being like changed into DeFi? I think a bit. I mean, I think it's. I think it's. I think there needs to be a bridge because tradfi will always be the fi. I mean, that's, that's just the way that I see it. I think DeFi presents an alternative, but I, I just think that the incumbents are in place and I just cannot see TradFi going anywhere. I think that it will be, you know, we'll take the stuff with of DeFi and that will go into TradFi with like central bank digital currencies where you've got national currencies that sit on a blockchain. Mm-hmm. But while that is digital, it's not DeFi. It's just a digital version of 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 tradfi losing the name i guess with central bank yeah exactly, exactly. <laughs> so i think that yeah we'll start seeing bridges between i mean you see like um what's it the winklevi with their exchange called uh called gemini and if you've seen they've got the gemini card and this is becoming a more of a common thing where you can earn rewards in bitcoin so every time you make a payment using the gemini credit card you get like a percentage in cash back in Bitcoin. Why does everyone do that? Like Binance have done it. And I swear, right, Riot Games did a credit card with American Express where you earned Riot points. Yeah. So, so what, what you have to factor in is that that is only like possible in America. Mm. So it's, it's actually funny because before we, we were at we went to breakfast with a lot of our friends and actually had this similar conversation on the way out with another one of our friends. Really? Yeah, because we were talking about, he was talking about the rewards that he earns on his credit cards and stuff. And, and we were just saying about how in America you can earn significantly more because in America, there isn't a cap on the merchant rate. So when you make a transaction, the 
bank slash card issuer takes a percentage cut of the final transaction. Okay. Now, in over here, through the first uh, financial, the first, oh, what's it called? The first payment services directive from the EU, that capped the merchant fee rate. So you could only charge like 0.5%, mm. which is why you find that credit card rewards in this country are shit. If you go to America, some of these rates are going up to like 10%. Really? But under, and this one then gets really complicated. Then you've got like what's called PCI DSS, right? Payment card industry data security standard. And what that basically says is that says that like a, a merchant cannot discriminate against a card. Right, because we do have that in the UK, you know, like I've been to some stores where they're like, we don't accept American Express. And they say, and that's because American Express charge a slightly higher rate. And they, and that is that bit is allowed. What you can't do is you can't discriminate between a visa. You either accept all visas or you don't accept any visas. So what that means is that you've got some cards where you've got like the, like a Chase Sapphire card or whatever it's called. And that might have like a 5 10% merchant rate. Yeah because it gives the cardholder loads of rewards versus like a standard boring visa that has a 1% rate that offers no rewards. The merchant can't go, sorry, mate, we don't accept that Chase Sapphire card because it's too expensive for us to accept it. Yeah. But no, you've, you've got no choice. If you want to accept a visa, you've got to accept that. So that's why you start seeing these cashback things happening because they can do that because they can charge a, a fucking extortionate rate to the merchant. Damn, how is that fair though? Like... But it's not. That's why they tried. That's why, that's why in this. That's why in, in in Europe they tried to. They capped it. Yeah. And it, it just means that as consumers, you get zero. You get like no rewards at all for your cards. Like yeah, miles and stuff. You don't get that really in, in this country. Like I'd almost have like sort of secondhand embarrassment using the card because I know that I'm fucking over the merchant. Well, people don't know that. People don't know that they're fucking over the merchant, and they don't think the merchant's really able to say to them either yeah. because they don't know because they've just got to accept the card just every time they do it someone just go they go but then that's also but that's like bad customer service isn't it if they're like like touching you yeah <laughs> in the card especially because these are people that might be paying in like a really high transaction they might be you know quite wealthy people that are buying really expensive stuff mm. but yeah so that's why you're seeing more of these it's a very like long way of explaining it but that's why you've got like these cards that are able to offer you like white points or yeah cryptocurrency is rules okay that makes sense so so in terms of like the gemini card you say that they pay you in crypto rewards yep so does that mean that somewhere along the way like they're actually transfer tran transferring some fiat to like crypto to then pay you because these merchant uh, well, they're gonna have liquidity aren't they yeah i suppose so. the, the exchange is gonna have liquidity that's why you've got uh, when you do like an otc versus a, a buy limit order mm. on exchanges where if you do otc you're paying a slightly higher rate because you are it's basically like buying money from a, a, a travel bureau and you're getting shafted on the foreign exchange rate and they're taking a profit off the foreign exchange rate off the rate that they offer you they're taking a hefty profit but if you go into a buy limit market then you're just doing it at what somebody across the world is prepared to pay for that crypto so there's no there's a little bit of profit. There's more exchange fees, but there's no profit in. There's no profit included in the price. Yeah, yeah. that makes sense. Yeah, because like, wow. and so to, sorry to offer those OTC pay to offer those OTC orders. Mm. There's liquidity in the exchange, and that's how Gemini will be able to do it because they'll have liquidity in the exchange. Yeah, yeah. It's just kind of weird, isn't it? Like you know, you're talking about 
sort of the travel brokers, you do get fucked on the price on, yeah. you know, transacting sterling to, to euro. And like, why don't, is, I mean, is, is DeFi, could that sort of solve that problem? Especially with like, if we had like CBDCs and like you, you're just doing the swap on a DEX instead for the particular. Potentially your, your, your problem is, uh, is terrorism. Yeah. It's counter-terrorism, it's KYC AML, it's, it's identity checks and all that stuff. You know, you buy, you go to a foreign, you go to a foreign travel bureau, you're typically going to have to show ID at the point in which you purchase. And I'm pretty sure they scan your ID when you buy the, uh, when you buy the, when you make the payment. Which, you know, I'm, I am fine with, like, in terms of doing it in a DeFi way. I'm just trying to think, like. But it, it's difficult because how, because then somebody's got to store identity and who's going to store identity in DeFi? Yeah, true. I just don't want Sainsbridge Travel to fuck me over anymore when I try and buy euros or dollars. I've got a, um, a discount code for Sainsbridge Travel that hasn't changed since I used to be employed there. So I really? Employed, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and like they're, they're, they're able to do that with a Nectar card as well. I mean, I, I mean, then you go into, and I think we'll, we'll probably, this is something that is probably for a, a different episode, which is like FinTech. But then you've got like, I mean, my bank is Monzo and Monzo don't charge fees on, don't broad charge broad. fees on abroad payments. And what they also are offering you is they also offer you the, the MasterCard rate. So they're offering you the cheapest rate that they can get you on the foreign currency, which is what MasterCard offers. Where if you, are, if you went to someone like Barclays, Barclays are charging you a fee and then they're charging you a, a shitty rate as well. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, double shafted. But no, I don't, I don't think there is a, a DeFi way of doing that unless you go to a foreign country and the foreign country offers accepts lightning. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess that's kind of like where we could see that real impact on our everyday lives and going on holiday and stuff like that. Yeah. It's definitely, um, do you see yourself ever buying something in crypto, like going to a shop and if the shop said, right, you can, you can buy it in fiat or you can buy it in crypto. So I've seen, um, like I am a bit of a, an XRP ledger stan. So I've seen a XRP ledger driven soda machine whereby it basically was like a, an XRPR wallet address, which was a QR code. Um, and you scanned it with your phone and basically sent XRP to that address. And then the machine would then validate that and give you soda. So how does the machine validate that you're the one that sent it? Well, perhaps, the, perhaps I mean, it was, it was like, this thing wasn't a polished, um, like, you know, wasn't a Coca-Cola vending machine. It was actually like a fucking cardboard box with like an upside down soda bottle and some sort of mechanism to release it. So I, I guess there wasn't any like hardcore checks. It may have just been like current wallet address equals this amount when current wallet address equals a greater amount disperse soda. Yep. And then, uh, then current wallet address equals new wallet address uh, price, current wallet address like value. And so, yeah, so like this is kind of like a, a really naughty example of like how crypto payments are actually pretty easy to do. Like, yeah, because it's just a QR code. Yeah. It's just a QR code that you, you, yeah. you do. And it's, it comes down to the interface, really. You're starting to see with, with Lightning Network, you're seeing a lot of people building technology that, that supports it. It just comes down to the product. Yeah. You know, like the actual user interface there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's not like me or you give a shit about how Monzo actually transacts money from my current account to the merchant. It's just like we have an interface, usually contactless. I mean, it might be that the, the way that I see it is the, 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 
the way the payment works is it could be a, a, a QR code that both embeds the wallet, the receiving wallet and the amount. And then what you're just doing, and I think that's how it works. I think that's how some of the QR like codes fixed, work. Yeah, okay, like a fixed so, amount. So rather than say, you know, you, you have a card terminal where you, I mean, over here, we just tap tap our card on it. But what it does, it just presents the QR code, which is the sending, which is the receiving wallet address and the amount. And then you just scan the QR code and that's how you've made, Yeah. that's how you've made the payment. Yeah. And I mean, I could see potentially you getting preferential rate by doing it in crypto because you do it because it's 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 cheaper for the for the receiving for the merchant because they're not having to pay the merchant rate i mean especially in america as i just, just yeah. said about how expensive it can end up being it's the, the the way in which they can begin to like discriminate in a way yeah, yeah. And I, the, I the only thing the only thing is then is sorry is, is then switching from the the the, the bitcoin into back in, into like a fiat currency because the business is going to have, have to operate in a fiat world. But then with Strike and how Strike is converting dollars into pounds but using the Lightning Network to do that, I guess it's going to be quite easy for them to be able to switch into fiat. Yeah, because that's kind of what I was going to touch upon is like the whole, I'd never envis- envisaged it to be like a parallel payment system where like you do probably have an option to pay with like fiat or crypto. I guess similar to today where you pay either cash, physical cash, or digital cash. Mm. Although, you know, there's now a trend where pop-up stores or like, you know, new hip stores, they don't accept cash. No. So maybe a similar thing will happen in that. Well, if, you, if you look at, sorry, if you look at China, mm. China uses WeChat mm. and it's just QR codes everywhere. Yeah. And you're, you're, you've got a wallet that's on your phone, a WeChat wallet that's on your phone, and you transact by basically just scanning the by scanning a QR code yeah. and you make a payment. Yeah. And that kind of goes down the whole of a sort of woke system whereby I was I was watching um Ethereal, the Ethereal Summit. So it's like yeah. Ethereum's uh, virtual summit. And they had Snowden on talking about privacy of payments and stuff like that. And like they were talking specifically about WeChat and uh how it was basically used against uh, protesters that were in, a, in an area of the protest. And um, I can't remember what it was, but like they were trying to use the nearby uh, tube. And obviously that payment is all digital. Mm-hmm. And I can't remember what they were doing, but I think they were either, they either got caught because they used the tube next to the protests, or they were like trying to use another payment method that was untraceable for them to allow them to get the tube. And that was the argument is that like, this convenience and this like incentivization of like using digital first currencies, particularly cryptocurrencies sort of like removes the privacy of payment. But to be honest, like I don't really. Removes the privacy of the payment, but the payment is pseudonymous in a way, isn't it? Well, I guess it's because they, they, I guess, I don't know how WeChat works, but I'm assuming it is KYC. And they know that wallet addresses. Oh right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Wallet I mean, addresses. But when you go to like when you, if you did like Lightning Network, then I guess Lightning Network can be can be anonymous. Yeah. I mean, I, I had investment opportunity in in a company that did like Lightning. It was basically a Lightning Network ATM, uh, and it was done through um, the almost like a mobile phone top up. You mm-hmm. can go to a shop and you can basically buy Bitcoin over the counter at, at a shop using and it uses the Lightning Network to facilitate the payment. But well, can you say that? Yeah. Oh. Yeah, it's just business. It's just I can't reveal like the amounts of money. Like I can't reveal like what they're trying, how much money they're trying to raise, and all that kind of stuff. That bit's the confidential bit. Is like the oh, okay. the money that they're trying to raise. 
And the reason why I chose not to invest in this company was just because of the, uh, the KYC AML element to that, because I can imagine that from a, the wallet perspective, you, anyone can have a Bitcoin wallet. You don't need KYC AML, a Bitcoin wallet. So that's why I chose not to, because I thought, well, this business might, has a, has an issue because of the regulatory risk that's involved. Yeah. Cause like for it to be widespread, it, it probably will like have to be like paired with your, like a, like your identity. Yep. So people will object to that, but like, if you're not doing anything shady, like why does it matter? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that's, I think that's one of the very key things about Bitcoin is it's like, it's like the idea of well, it's the opposite actually, because it's kind of like, does it, why should I be snooped? Mm. I'm not doing anything wrong. So why should I be watched? Yeah. And that's, that's the argument that privacy always is, is it's like, personally, I'm liberal. So the way I see it is that I don't want governments to be snooping on me. Yeah. I don't do anything shady, but, and therefore I shouldn't be snooped on. I guess, um, yeah, it does. It obviously has one fundamental flaw in that, you know, it's open for exploit. Yeah, everything is. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And like, I mean, you look at HSBC, yeah. HSBC money laundered for terrorism. You look at the amount of money that goes through the banking system that is supporting terrorism and it's ridiculous. Yeah. And that's through the traditional bank- banking system. Mm. And they're getting away with it. Like, I think it's something like the UK is basically used by Russian billionaires to launder their money. <laughs> yeah. Maybe maybe it will enforce a change, DeFi. Or at least open an opportunity for change to happen. Yeah. yeah. Because that's probably the issue when you have long-standing traditional finance. It must be really hard to convince the powers that be to like make big policy changes to the way it works. Yeah. But when you have disruptive technology like DeFi, you can almost couple that with changes that you may have been wanting to make for many, many years. It's just that there was no right time to do so. Yeah. So you, you're talking about the melding of DeFi with TradFi. It's kind of like that, that like window of opportunity in order to sort of like change the way finance works in terms of laundering like how how do we do privacy how do we like combat terrorism funding and laundering and i don't know it's it's just tricky i think it's hard to see right now what what could be and like we generally do speculate on the future but it's really hard for me to like actually envisage this one yeah and seeing how it's going to be placed in society like i think it's only going to continue to grow yeah that's a very easy yeah yeah, thing to say but it's it's about where will it be placed and and how off how many people will be using it. You, know, you see people like the the uh, the, the founder of Binance, CZ, who, who claims he holds no fiat. He only, yeah. he only holds crypto. He's like the poorest guy ever. Though. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure. I guess we'll have to. It's certainly one we're going to have to come back on. Yeah, and you know, not the same as our last episode in that it's going to take ten. 20 years before we see any like radical changes but DeFi should be a topic that we probably go over again every half a year maybe like yeah. a quarter yeah just because of like how rapidly it's growing the quarterly DeFi special yeah, yeah we could do a quarterly <laughs> DeFi special stay tuned <laughs> thanks for listening to this episode of Future Talk if you enjoyed this episode please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts And if you'd like to suggest a topic for a future episode, DM us on Twitter. I'm at BT Klusker. And I'm at Harry Moy. Everything we've discussed in this episode is linked in the show notes. See you next week.